Hi, I'm Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company Sitka Salmon Shares. And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild? What's farmed? All these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're going to talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish. I couldn't agree more, Paul. All right, let's dive in. He was spawning a little bit, which generally you don't want fish spawning on your feet. I said he was happy to see me. If you couldn't make out that voice, that was President Obama on his 2015 visit to Bristol Bay, Alaska. Home to Yupik, Alutik, and Athabascan tribal members, and also home to one of the most important salmon runs anywhere in the world. His remarkable trip was meant to highlight the importance of sustaining these fisheries of Bristol Bay and the native Alaskans whose families, traditions, and cultures have been tied to this region and to these fish for thousands of years. We're thankful uh, for the incredible display of uh, fishing skill that has been built up over you know, hundreds of years. You know, and, and all the folks here uh, engage in subsistence fishery, uh, which is part of the traditional way of life uh, for so many here uh, on Bristol Bay. Of course, it's not just Bristol Bay. Today, Fish Talk explores the relationship between native peoples of the United States and fisheries. For native peoples across the U.S., fish are more than just food. They're extensions of a way of life, a way to carry on tradition, and an opportunity to share culture. I thought a good place to begin this episode would be to catch up with my good friend Rob Kaneen. And, interestingly enough, he got to cook for President Obama when he visited Alaska in 2015. My name is Rob Kaneen. I am a chef in Durham, North Carolina, born and raised in Alaska, and am of Clinkett heritage. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to cook for President Obama. Cooking for President Obama, I would say, is surreal. I got this cryptic email, can't tell anybody, but you might be cooking for the president. As it came to fruition, we have to show up four hours early so that they can close the road. And then as we get to the house, we have to leave for a bomb sweep. It was really intense. Probably every guest there could have had a book written on them in the sense of who they were and what they've done for the state of Alaska. The actual meal itself, we were highlighting traditional foods, subsistence foods and Alaskan foods. That was just phenomenal. Once it got to the cooking part, it was kind of nerve-wracking. There was a Secret Service liaison chef that traveled with the president anywhere in the world that he went. He let me do the job, but they were just constantly like, hey, what's that? What's that? Oh, what do you got there? What do you got in there? How long have you been for? You know, and it was crazy. You grew up, Klingit, 
in rural Southeast Alaska. And then you became, over the next decade or, or two, a renowned chef. Describe that journey for us. During this time when I was growing up in Alaska, obviously we'd be on fishing trips, we'd be on hunting trips. As a little boy, I remember picking berries all the time. And people used to come over and harvest and fish during seasons and procure food. So there's a lot of natural environment there. And I think for me, becoming a chef, I started becoming more and more interested in the local food movement. You know, in Alaska, when 96% of your food is imported to the state, and people talk about Alaska being a food desert, I was thinking, well, how can I be from this lineage of 10,000 years and live in a food desert? And that's where I started kind of paralleling local foods and traditional foods and doing a lot of the work around the state of Alaska. So we're here with Chef Rob Kaneen in the kitchen, and we're cooking something. Today we're going to be cooking an uh, Alaska-centric dish. We're going to be doing salmon that's been pan-seared with a tamari glaze and furikake. And we've got carrots, zucchini, and wakame salad. You just take your zucchini and carrot, and you peel down to the core with the carrot edge, you peel the skin off and you're basically just putting enough salt in there and it's going to draw the moisture out and kind of give everything a cooked pasta feel to it. Should I do this in a bowl and mix it together and put the salt over it? That's what I'm doing? Yeah. Okay. So with this, very simple, the salt, it'll just kind of pull out the moisture, give a little texture to it, but still keep a crunch. So we have that, the uh, wakame salad. This is something I got from, from the sushi side, again, of Whole Foods. One thing I wanted to bring a dialogue about is just the benefits of seaweed. And the really neat part is that trace minerals and vitamins you get from seaweed actually helps pull the vitamin D out of the fish. And when mm. you think about Alaska, that's a big deal, maximizing the omega-3 fatty acids and the vitamin D. So I've got the seaweed, the vegetables, salt. We're just going to kind of let this hang out for a minute. In the recipe, I did put a half teaspoon of fish roe. This is from the motherland. I've got some herring, which in April, indigenous people will lay out hemlock or kelp, and they'll wait for the herring to come in, do their business, and this is what you end up with. It's like this beautiful herring roe. Uh, you can boil it, but I like eating it raw, and I was going to throw a little bit right in the salad as well. Are we ready to do the salmon? Yeah, I believe so. But before we toss the sockeye into the pan, let's learn about how it comes to our plate and the role that it and other fish play in the lives of indigenous people on the West Coast. Let's start this conversation with indigenous salmon fisher and wild salmon advocate, Melanie Brown. My name is Melanie Brown. Right now, I'm living on Slinket Anni in the wintertime in the place that's known as Juneau. And in the summertime, I go to Bristol Bay, where my mom is from, to go be with the salmon. How long have you been fishing? I was 10 years old when I started fishing with my family. My mom and my great-grandfather and my older sister were running three sites when I started fishing with them. I've missed a couple of seasons because I have two children, and, and they were both born in the summer. But for the most part, I've been fishing every season since I started in 1979. And does your family participate both in commercial fisheries and subsistence fisheries, meaning fish for market and fish for yourselves? Usually, instead of setting out an additional subsistence net, we pull what we need for the winter from our commercial gear, and then we put that away in our freezer. 
Are you generally catching red salmon or sockeye salmon or what kind of fish is the primary run in the Naknek River? In all of Bristol Bay, the primary salmon species that's targeted for commercial use, but also just It's the most abundant of the salmon species that comes through Bristol Bay. The landscape of Bristol Bay is just so ideal for sockeye. Sockeye salmon are what we get most abundantly. But when we get kings, we are really happy to get those and save those for the winter. This episode of Fish Talk is about the importance of fish and fisheries to Native peoples in uh, what is now the United States. Do you want to tell us about your background being a Native resident of Alaska? Sure. I grew up being told that on my mom's side, I was Aleut. And then it wasn't until later when I started attending the university in Fairbanks and learning more about my culture from an academic viewpoint that the language map didn't fall in line with where the delineation of Aleut people was. The Aleutians on Bristol Bay is pretty far east of the Aleutians. But it was later that I came to realize, wow, before people were required to have an address or a town where they could enroll their children in school, people migrated quite a bit to follow game and fish and forage. People would go to where they needed to go to get their moose in the fall or their fish in the summer. I finally came to realize that my people from my mom's side had migrated toward Bristol Bay. So I identify now as Unangan because Unangan is the name that Aleut people prefer to be called now because it is their self-given name. It's not a name that was imposed upon them by the Russians. So I identify as Unangan, but also Sukhpiak, because my great-grandmother's people lived in um, Kodiak. But when the Katmai eruption took place, that really disrupted the movement of people. And then soon after that, the Spanish influenza happened. That was an incredible disruption, because people in the prime of their lives were the ones that fell ill and died. And it was elders and youth that were left behind. So my great Great-grandparents were left to raise themselves after the Spanish influenza. But my great-grandmother was sent for from Leavelock to marry my great-grandfather in Naknik. And they made a, quite a life together. And they were both cannery workers initially, but then became fishermen. My great-grandfather started fishing during the sailboat era. And I continue to fish the site that my great-grandfather staked out to this day with my two children. They're my crew. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the importance of fish in in sustaining you, your family? Speak to it. I guess to say it as simply as possible, salmon are what have sustained my people since time immemorial. Salmon are what make us who we are. I believe that. And I feel like I wouldn't be here if the salmon hadn't sustained my great-grandparents after they experienced such great loss. So I'm really grateful for what salmon have provided for my family in so many ways. And then the salmon, they not only support us with food, but they support the land that they bring nutrients back to when they return from the ocean. And by doing that, they support other living creatures I I feel really fortunate that even though I don't live in Bristol Bay year-round, that my parents 
helped me recognize the importance of our traditional foods and how they connect us to the land and to our culture. It's all intertwined. If that is disrupted, it will create a huge hole in our culture and our hearts. That's why I feel so compelled to work to protect wild salmon habitat because it's such a huge part of maintaining our traditions and our culture. Can you talk to me a little bit about your winter work at Salmon State, the nonprofit? The mission of Salmon State is to protect salmon places and the habitat that salmon are supported in. So we have campaigns that are centered in different parts of Alaska, but there are certain places that we are really focused on protecting right now, such as the Tongass and Bristol Bay. What do you see as the biggest threat to sustaining your livelihood and your culture, particularly as it relates to these fish? Oh, gosh. Well, the proposed pebble mine, it's an open pit mine at the headwaters of the two most prolific rivers in Bristol Bay. If that project goes through, you might as well just say, we're done. Because Bristol Bay, it's the last truly great run of wild salmon that is left in the world, in all of the world. You know, there are other places that support wild salmon, but Bristol Bay is really the only one that supports it in its full abundance I'm talking over 50 million sockeye salmon alone. And that's just in a very specific place in the terrestrial environment of salmon. There are huge threats in the ocean as well. Climate change, that's a huge factor. But one of the things that's really emerging that we need to figure out how to affect change in is the huge amount of bycatch that's happening in the ocean right now with factory trawlers and how they intercept kings that are meant for the Yukon and all of the native communities on the Yukon River. The people have had to curtail how they participate in their salmon culture because the kings are not making it home. Or if they do, they're coming back in such small numbers that people have to conserve and let those fish go by so that they can hopefully spawn and new generations of kings that will hopefully (laughs) come back and not be caught at sea. Those are the things that are at the top of my brain when it comes to concerns around salmon. Thank you so much, Melanie, for sharing your story with us. And it's a it's a really powerful one. Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Ecosystems are complex. Buying responsibly caught seafood doesn't have to be. Sitka Salmon Shares delivers a monthly share of seafood to your door that's sourced with the health of our fisheries, oceans, and communities in mind. Learn more about their wild-caught Alaska seafood and the fishermen who caught it, and find expertly crafted recipes at SitkaSalmonShares.com. During my research for this episode, I picked up a remarkable book called Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States. One of the more delightful chapters chronicled the work of Kua, leading the effort to revitalize traditional foods among native and rural people in Hawaii. Intrigued and inspired by what I read about their work on fisheries and other marine resources, I gave Kevin Chang, Kua's co-director, a call to learn more. My name is Kevin Chang. I'm from Oahu, Hawaii. I work for an organization called Kua Aina Ulu. We are created by a movement 
And that movement is around the care and stewardship for that which feeds. Can you tell us how you got into this? How, how you got into this line of work? It seems like you did a lot of things before you got to be one of the directors of KUA. Yeah, I, I guess it's important to say that I'm not Native Hawaiian. I'm a local person, grew up here. Also, I'm an attorney, but my main pathway towards this work was the community I grew up in that was primarily Native Hawaiian and rural. Some were fishermen, some were hunters, some were cultural practitioners. I kind of accidentally got into what people call conservation. So ultimately, I moved into work that was about working with people who cared about the places they lived in and caring for Mm -hmm. it. So tell us about fish, the importance (laughs) of fish to rural and Native Hawaiians. We were founded by a group of subsistence fishers who wanted to have more say over the management of their fishery because they saw an absence of the government and a need to rebuild values that they grew up with. And embedded in those values really are a deeper familial relationship with the environment, but also just very practical. If you lived on, say, like the island of Molokai, and you relied on a fishery, and every day you saw fishers from another island coming into your area that used to be yours to manage and just taking it all, right? Our folks in uh, rural communities, really subsistence fishing is a real part of their life. I mean, that's how they feed themselves. What specifically has taken place in the last decade to bring more local management to some of the more rural places in Hawaii? In the 90s, they successfully passed a law that is supposed to allow a subsistence community to collaborate in management over their fisheries. And in the past 20 to 30 years, they've actually created the first one. It's taken this long, right? So there's the fisheries, and then there's been a a growth around indigenous aquaculture, Mm -hmm. or what we call in Hawaii, loko ia. Local being like a pond, ia being fish that sit in the estuaries of watersheds, basically, and have this kind of perfect environment for growing food fish, which are in Hawaii mostly herbivorous fish. Right now, we're talking about how these fish ponds can bring more life back to our near shore. Because the problems we're seeing on the near shore is that our herbivorous fishery has gone down, and so fish ponds cannot naturally recruit those fish unless we develop some catchery or some kind of way of bringing them back. So basically, they're fish ponds that have been kind of created out of a little estuary where fish are able to swim in, and then people use these ponds to grow those fish naturally. Is that right? Mm -hmm. They take advantage of the tide, so it follows the natural flow of the environment. The small fish come in, they get fat, and then they can't get out, (laughs) basically. Are there specific examples of those local ihas being rehabilitated? Because some of these are hundreds, if not thousands of years old. Is that right? Yeah, they're evolving from first as a cultural restoration to education and outreach. Now they're talking about actually growing fish and building that capacity the model has to be how do we fit it into restoring our near shore? So they're exploring with other things too. There is at least one or two ponds who are exploring 
commercial oyster. There's talk about sea cucumbers, but I think there's still a strong desire to bring back the herbivorous fish fishery. The other thing that I got to learn about in researching kua, the importance of seaweed and the different seaweeds in Hawaiian food culture and the restoration and the revitalization of that limu, correct? Limu, yeah. So some fish ponds too are also trying to grow limu. It's used in the diet. It's used for kind of cultural and spiritual practice. We also facilitate a group of uh, mostly elders, limu gatherers, who are interested in bringing back the understanding of it, but also restoring it to our environments. The way we have developed our lands in Hawaii really has diminished the capacity of our near shore to grow limu because limu needs fresh and salt water. The fresh water has been diverted in large part to large-scale plantation agriculture and development. Well, our agricultural economy is shifting. So plantation agriculture is pretty much done. What we're doing now is growing houses. (laughs) Until we start growing food, we're growing houses. So what's your favorite Hawaiian fish to eat and your favorite preparation? (laughs) There's a fish we call opelu, which I think is the mackerel. And I actually recently got to eat it raw, like Mm. poke, uh, opelu poke. And I actually really liked that. That was really good. That was a really cool story from your chapter in the book about how fishers would go out and you wouldn't always gather the mackerel. Sometimes you'd go out and feed the mackerel mm-hmm. and you wouldn't harvest it. Yeah. What an amazing story of sustainability and understanding a fishery that half of the time that fishers were going out, they weren't even going out to harvest, but they were going to kind of nurture and steward that resource. Indigenous fisheries often mean much more than just a connection to tradition culture. They also mean economic empowerment and the exercise of national sovereignty, as they do for the tribes in the Pacific Northwest that make up the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. The commission, called CRITFIC for short, is sort of a governing body that helps to ensure that native fishers along the Columbia River have the ability to harvest some of the hundreds of thousands of salmon that make their way up the watershed annually. John Matthews is a member of the Nez Perce Nation and Critfix Finance and Operations Director. I'm uh, John Matthews. I'm a Nemipu, member of the Nez Perce tribe. We call ourselves Nemipu. And we're located eastern Oregon and north Idaho. And our aboriginal territory extends over to Montana. I went to school in University of Idaho, a JD, MBA from Wazoo. And that brought me indirectly to Critfic. In about 1987, I came over as a legal intern, and I left. I went over to work for my tribe, and I was appointed to represent the tribe on the development of a salmon marketing program. And then this position opened up, and so I applied for the CFO position, and I was appointed to that position in 1994. Tell us a little bit about the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission and what it is, how this commission came about, why it's so important to Native and Indigenous fishers along in the Pacific Northwest, particularly along the Columbia River. The uh, common thread among the four treaty tribes who I work for, Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, there's four tribes. So the common thing that binds us together is our tribes have 
common provisions in our treaties, and basically it's the right of taking fish at all usual and accustomed grounds and stations is further secured to said Indians in common with all citizens of the territory and of erecting temporary houses for the purpose of curing. So that's the commonality we have on our treaties. 1855, I don't think the uh, non-tribal people were too worried about the Indians and their fisheries, but as more people came west, you started to see a lot more demand on the natural resources, and the tribal people weren't necessarily getting uh, equitable share of the fisheries. So tribal members were really struggling to exercise their rights. Yes, it clarified a number of different issues when the Bolt decision slayed Gordon, I think 1974, and the Bolt decision noted that it was uh, pretty clear that we are entitled to uh, 50% allocation of the fisheries running through our respective streams or areas. It also helped, given this ability to participate in the fisheries management plan for the Northwest, I think that's a big thing as we have a say in the Columbia River fisheries. Can you just walk us through it? What's your average fisher's day like? Even before the season, the fishers are, are working hard, repairing nets, repairing their boats, doing those things that'll make sure that their boats are safe and that their nets are good quality conditions so they don't have big gapping holes in them. So a lot of them do a lot of prep work and they'll usually during the fishing season set their nets in the evening, come back early morning and and pick their nets and pull them and bring them to shore and then they'll decide uh, where does the fish go. And then after they're, they're dividing, it's like get some sleep and go back the evening. John, I find it really fascinating that your commission uses modern forms of business to perpetuate some of these more traditional fishing traditions. You think you could speak to that for us for a few minutes? Yes. I was appointed CFO position in 1994. And about a year later in the strategic planning process, the four tribes said we adopted a new goal and as to increase the economic value of the treaty commercial fisheries because there was roughly one, maybe two, non-Indian wholesalers along the river. And they seen the tribal fishers bringing their fish directly off the boats and selling directly to the public. When you're doing that, this fish is probably a lot higher price. I mean, that could be probably six to eight bucks a pound versus yeah. maybe three or four when you're doing the selling to the wholesale buyer. We recognized and tried to build upon the over-the-bank sales. That's what we called them got the press out, developed some human interest stories. Why do you fish? Why do you do this? And a lot of fishers, I've been doing this my entire life. And it's not my main income, but it supplements my income. And, and I teach my children and grandchildren the importance of fishing this tradition. And that was like all of a sudden, hey, we can do this. And, and so we built upon that. Since that time, we've uh, bring about eight to 10 buyers to the river and we strategically place them and they compete. That's one alternative for the tribal fishers to move large poundages, you know, maybe a thousand, two thousand pounds, and they still have the over the bank sales, a lot more mm-hmm. selective, slower sales, but still the margins are really great. We also expanded into farmers markets. Certain staff go over to farmer's market and sell there, and that way they kind of divide up their product, kind of a diversifying your product yeah. line. They may 
dry fish, some of them dry fish. They'll develop their own products, their various recipes, put a label on it. I think one of the big things we've noticed is the tribal fishers, they've listened to food safety, quality handling. They recognize, for instance, the importance of having a federally compliant food safety facility where to process. That kind of gives consumer perception of, of quality and assurance of safety measures. When we first took over the program, as we recognized that we didn't have a good reputation. We looked at a lot of different things. How do you care for the fish? What, what are some better ways? We looked at the federal guidelines. We had some University of Idaho, Washington State University profs come over and teach classes and build upon food safety, quality handling. You don't throw your fish, you ice it, take care of it, check your nets fairly quickly in the morning, and just increasing consumer awareness about our quality. And it was tough in those years. It wasn't popular. It's like, hey, we've been doing this forever, and by golly, all of a sudden, the buyers were noticing, hey, yeah, that's that's really good. Yeah, we'll, we'll buy more of those fish. And so we never have operated our program as you need to do this or you need to do that. We kind of relied on talking with the fishers and laying out the ideas. And what we recognized is a lot of the old-timers, long-term fishers, they'd be the product champions. And they'd go, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a good idea. You young people, you need to do this. We should do this. And there's benefits here. It's kind of interesting how that works. Why is this all important? What does it mean to the tribes that participate in the commission? We recognize the fish are an icon of the Northwest. There's a lot of people that appreciate the fisheries by either fishing or recreational activities. We're trying to uh, ensure the survival of the species. Critvik has worked hard on returning the fish so that we have enough for ceremonial, subsistence, or commercial uh, reasons. And that's how it's always looked at, too. It's always commercial is the last. We're really thankful, John, that you're able to share your story and your work and talk about what what you guys are doing to ensure the viability of these salmon runs and the ability to have access to them continues in, in perpetuity. Sure. Thank you. With all this talk of salmon, I think it's time for us to return to my co-host Paul Greenberg and Chef Rob Kaneen, where we continue cooking our Bristol Bay sockeye and hearing from Rob about native fisheries and traditional foods. Are we ready to do the salmon? Yeah, I believe so. All right, so salmon, I skinned it and, and pinboned it last night, ready to go. Okay, so skin off. I wasn't, that was a question of mine because I sometimes like to cook with the skin on. You could do that if you like. I would probably start on the skin and sear the skin. Okay, yeah. should I scale it or should I keep it unscaled? I would scale it. Personally. Okay, I'll scale it. I'm scaling right into the microphone so you can get some scaling sound effects. <laughs> I always enjoy salmon skin on. It seems to keep the fish from overcooking. And I I like the ability of the skin to make my culinary mistakes go away. So you think I should do skin side up or skin in the pan first? I would go skin side down and just crisp it up a little bit. The idea was also just to kind of add a little texture to that with this furikake blend. It's a kelp seasoning from Barnacle Seafood, which is based out of Juneau, Alaska. So, Rob, for a cocky, for people who've never had it or heard of it, what is it? I would call it probably a traditional like rice condiment, kelp, sugar, sesame seeds, salt, and bonito. For a cocky, just on the, on the belly side or on the skin side as well? I was going to do both sides. I don't know if it'll stick to the skin. 
I'm going to do the furikake only on the meat side, and the skin side I'm going to leave plain. How much oil, Rob? A tablespoon. And do you have an oil preference? I, I'm using grapeseed oil. Getting into your 40s, you have to start paying attention to your health a little bit more. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> all those years of abuse kind of start catching up with you. They do. So grapeseed is, is just something that's supposed to be nutritionally beneficial and uh, a little better for you. To me, it's neutral as well. I'm going to go fish in the pan here. Let's see how this goes. Looking for that little sizzle. And it's kind of a sweet spot where you want the skin rendered or you want the furikake not burning. So, okay, how, long, so how long altogether? I'll let it go probably like 45 seconds and just drop it in your pan. If it's sizzling, don't move it. Yep. It's all good. So you should be getting a little bubbling. I'll just kind of make sure there's some oil swing about. Have you guys flipped yet? I have not flipped yet. I, w- I was thinking about it, though. Before you flip it, the tamari, if you just kind of drop it over, and what's going to happen is you're going to get a little sizzle. Now you're going to want to pull out excess oil. Okay, I've got the tamari going in. Okay. And you're kind of watching it boil and bubble and kind of concentrate on, on that. That's when you want to flip it. Okay. What you're doing is giving a nice glaze over the fish. I've got a nice kind of caramel color over the top. The tamari has reduced down quite a bit. So it's kind of almost a glaze over that and then on the back side of the fish. And I'm letting it just sit in the pan and kind of go for a nice medium. Um, you can pull it a little sooner like a rest. That's what that's what I did. I had pretty thin slices of fish, and because okay. of that, I think they probably cooked in about six minutes. But uh, it looks delicious. I'm going to show Paul and Rob my creation. That looks great. That looks great. And here's mine. Oh yeah, that looks nice. All right. So yeah, I think everybody kind of came out about the same. Great. And what about the roe? The roe goes on top. I put the roe in the salad. Oh, okay. But you could throw a little on top as well. Now, if it had skin on it, would you serve it skin side up? I probably would, but I would still drop some furikake on top of that just to kind of give it a little color and texture. Mm. Gotcha. <clears throat> you spend all that time crisping the skin up. I think that's a good idea. So, Rob, are we allowed to take a bite? I'm like really hungry now. Are we allowed to take a bite? Yeah, right. Absolutely. The salad is delicious. Oh, the flavors, the, the soy and the, the sesame... And the furikake and the tamari all just go really well with this salad. The fish is delicious. I agree with you about the furikake. That is a really nice thing, and I'm going to cook with it forever now. It's been a while since I've had sockeye salmon. The fish is beautiful. I love the umami from the seaweed, the crunch of the sesame, and a little bit of that sweetness from the tamari glaze. Just goes incredibly well with the carrots and the zucchini and the seaweed salad. What do you guys think, Paul? Totally thumbs up. This was a pleasure to make and a pleasure to eat. Didn't stress me out, even though we had multiple things going on. And really, we put this together in about four minutes. So, I mean, good food doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be esoteric. It just has to have really solid ingredients. And to me, that's the future of of seafood. Where is my child going to get her fish from and her children? (laughs) Those are the things that are important to me and and really are the dialogue that we should be continuing on. Taking Rob's advice, we wrap this episode of Fish Talk by reiterating our commitment to continue the dialogue about how fish get from our coasts to our kitchens. 
We look forward to you joining Paul and me for the next episode. See you soon. Hey everyone, Paul here with a quick fish tip. Did you ever want to cook skin-on fillets but find that the fillets have the scales still on them? Well, if they're frozen, what you do is take it out of the freezer for just a little bit of time. When that fillet starts to soften up just a little bit, that's the time to scale your portion. You'll get the scales right off and then put it back in the fridge and let it defrost the rest of the way. Experience the real-life struggles of small-scale fishermen in the new documentary, Last Man Fishing. Narrated by best-selling author Mark Bittman, the film explores the growing tensions between corporate interests and small-scale fishermen. Featuring conservationist Carl Safina and author Paul Greenberg, Last Man Fishing calls to question the ethics of the seafood industry and its impact on fishermen and the ocean. Watch it now on iTunes, Apple TV, or YouTube. Learn more at lastmanfishing.com.